And welcome to our long weekend Sunday gathering. Um, when the clock hits 11 a.m. in 20 minutes, we'll see if we've um, got any stragglers <laughs> joining us. You know, I love church and I love it because it's a family. You know, we get to do family together. We had a wedding just yesterday. It was uh Julian and Debbie celebrating their, their wedding. So wonderful. It's a birthday today. Yvonne Gordon, where are you? Here, so at the back. Happy birthday today, sister. Uh, we, we get to see God working in people's lives. Even this morning, I was chatting to, uh, Mike and Rebecca Wood, just talking about God's provision of a home for them in Asquith. God is faithful. He's good. We're a family and we get to do this together, even on a long weekend. So how wonderful to, Open up God's word and hear more from our common Lord, our Lord Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Luke chapter 21. And our text for this morning is actually the majority of the chapter. Uh, We're going to read from verse 5 all the way through to the end. So Luke chapter 21, verse 5. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning, church. Luke chapter 21, verse 5. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, The days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. They asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, see that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation. And kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and a wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you will be put to death. You will be hated for, or by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance will you gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that 
its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth. Distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of heaven will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you this morning for the gift of your word. And we ask and pray that you would do what no preacher beset with weakness can. That's to take the seed of your word and to grow it into a mighty harvest in our lives and in our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, I want to begin this morning with a question. And the question is this. When you look out at the world, how do you feel? When you survey events as they're happening in the world today, how does that make you feel? You know, just this past week, Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia, said the following in a televised address. If the territorial integrity of our country is threatened, we will, without doubt, use all available means to protect Russia and our people. This is not a bluff. 
Citing NATO expansion towards Russia's borders, Putin said the West was plotting to destroy his country, engaging in nuclear blackmail, as he accused the West of discussing the use of nuclear weapons against Moscow. He accused the United States, the European Union, and Britain of encouraging Ukraine to push military operations into Russia itself. Now, for some pundits, it seems like we're headed for World War III or perhaps a nuclear holocaust. But this is only one of the many seemingly catastrophic events we can see in the world at the moment. There's the often named climate catastrophe, like flooding in Pakistan, the intense drought in most of the northern hemisphere, the global economic slowdown, rising inflation, tension between China and Taiwan. The list goes on. All the while in the West, there's a rapidly growing new pandemic, and that is the mental health pandemic. There's been a huge increase in rates of depression and suicide over the past 10 years. And although the cause is largely unknown and likely multifactorial, there is one agreed massive contributing factor to the mental health pandemic, and that is a loss of hope for the future. Over the past 10 years, there has been an exponential increase in self-reports of feeling Hopeless. As a culture, we look out at the future, the world, and there's a rising feeling of impending catastrophe and a powerlessness to do anything about it. And as a result, the future to many of us looks bleak and not bright. As Christians, we've been given a very different perspective on the events we see in the world and what we should expect in the future. And that future is one that is filled with hope. You see, 2,000 years ago, Jesus sat with his disciples on a mountainous ridge about 70 meters in elevation above Jerusalem. It's called the Mount of Olives. And he foretold events surrounding his second coming. But the purpose wasn't to try and create kind of wild speculation or to help predict his return. It wasn't to scare his disciples and kind of freak them out or or make them feel guilty about their lack of faithfulness. His aim was to help them prepare for the time between his first and second comings. Verse 8, he says, See that you're not led astray. Verse 13, he says, this will be your opportunity. Verse 28, he says, straighten up and raise your heads. And verse 34, he says, watch yourselves. Before verse 36, he says, stay awake at all times. This is about preparation. Uh, If you're taking notes this morning, I've entitled this message, The Kingdom of God is Near. And really, two points that come from our text this morning with one driving hope for us this morning. And that is that we would wait in hope 
for the coming of the kingdom of God. That is the burden of this passage that we'll be drawing out uh, this morning as we begin our time together. So let's dive in with point number one from our passage, four signs the kingdom of God is near. You know, if you're new to uh, this series in Luke, if you're joining us for the first time, uh, Jesus has come to the very final week before his public execution in Jerusalem. He's had a series of confrontations with religious leaders where he has shown his incredible wisdom from God and left people confounded. He's taught that God's eyes search through all the showiness and the performance to the heart, and he loves the faithful, even from those who have very little, like the widow and her two copper coins. Uh, The other Gospels place Jesus on the Mount of Olives, as I mentioned, just above Jerusalem with his disciples, where an innocent comment leads the conversation in a very different direction. Uh, Read with me those opening verses of our passage again. Verse 5, it says the following. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they said to him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will the sign when these things are about to take place be? Uh, The third Temple or the second temple that was refurbished by Herod the Great was unparalleled in the ancient world. Taking over 80 years to be built and being completed just seven years before it was destroyed in AD 70 by General Titus, it was a huge accomplishment. You see, the Herods were not actually descended from David, but from the high priestly family, the Hasmoneans, And so it was built to try and legitimize their rule and reign by saying, look what God is doing through us. Roman historian Tacitus describes this temple as immensely opulent. Just the retaining wall on the southeast, which was built to hold the temple courts, was 15 stories high. In the existing foundation that exists today, there are blocks of stone 13 meters by 4 meters by 3 meters, weighing over 500 tons apiece. Uh, The ancient historian Josephus suggests there were blocks in the actual temple even bigger, as long as 18 meters in length. Uh, Josephus also describes the doors to the complex of the temple. 24 meters high by 7 meters, overlaid with pure gold. The center of the sanctuary was shaped like a lion, 50 meters across by 50 meters high, bigger at the front, smaller at the back, decorated with a collage of gold and silver and crimson and purple, such that ancient writers describe Mount Zion as glimmering in the sun like a snow-capped mountain. 
It's easy to understand why the disciples were absolutely awestruck as they looked out at the temple glistening in the sun. And yet to Jesus, it was a sign of impending destruction. This must have absolutely stunned the disciples. The sign of God's blessing, his promise to dwell with Israel, our temple, the envy of the world, destroyed. And they pose two questions that inform the entire passage that follows. When will these things be, Jesus? And what will be the sign that these things are about to take place? And Jesus answers by describing signs that point to the kingdom of God being near. Verse 31, he says the following. He says, so also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. See, the kingdom of God, if you've read Graham Goldsworthy, is God's people in God's place under God's rule. It's about his reign on the earth. And there's a sense in which God is ruling everywhere in the universe, all people all the time, right? But also there are many ways in which people continue to rebel against his rule. And so Jesus is describing the coming of the final judgment of God when he himself will descend to judge the earth once and for all. Read with me verse 27 of our passage. Jesus says, And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Notice what he says, not on a cloud like we might imagine, but in a cloud. That is the glory cloud that symbolizes God's presence. Jesus descends with the powerful presence of God. Jesus is describing not just the destruction of the temple, but signs that will surround the end of human history as we know it. The joining of heaven and earth. You see, the word gospel, I was talking to someone this morning just about it. uh, It means good news. And yet it's actually a word that was common in Jesus' day, borrowed from the battlefield. It refers to the good news of a military victory in battle. See, the gospel is that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior of the entire world. And that he's coming to reconcile heaven and earth because the victory has been won. But Jesus is also clear that these are signs that his return is near. Not that it will arrive immediately. Verse 9, the end will not be at once. Verse 28, your redemption is near. Verse 31, the kingdom of God is near. These are signs that the kingdom of God is near. In fact, no one knows the day for verse 35, it will come upon you suddenly like a trap. See, Jesus goes on to describe Four signs that will surround this period that will be near his return. And the first is the destruction of the temple. See, this is the second time Jesus has mentioned the destruction coming upon Jerusalem. But now is the first time he's explicitly mentioned the temple in Jerusalem. 
Verse 6, he recounts that not a stone will be left on another. The temple will be completely leveled. Verse 20, he describes Jerusalem again being surrounded by armies. Verse 21, Jesus warns people to flee for their lives and stay away from the whole region. And verse 22 through to 24, he describes a time of great suffering and distress for people where many will be killed and led into captivity. And this is exactly what happened as the Roman general and future emperor Titus marched upon Jerusalem in a five-month siege that ended in AD 70. The historian, the Jewish historian Josephus, ancient historian, records the city was crowded for the Passover festival. And he reports that over one million people were slaughtered in that campaign. The true number that were killed will remain unknown. Josephus reports that as many as 100,000 were taken into slavery by the Romans or forced to become gladiators in the arena. And yet the true tragedy was not just the physical loss of life, but what this symbolized for God's people. This was the place that a thousand years earlier, God had instructed Solomon to build a place for Yahweh to dwell among his people. This was the place where God dwelt, where people could come and have their sins atoned for and to make peace with him. This was the place that would be absolutely wiped out and 2,000 years later today still remains destroyed. I mean, why would would God do this? Why would he bring about the destruction of his temple? Well, we read a clue at the end of verse 24. Jesus says, And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles, that is the nations, until, listen to this, the times of the nations are fulfilled. You see, we've moved into a new period where The kingdom of God in its fullness is near. The times of the nations is here. See, God's temple had been replaced forever with the spirit of God dwelling in the people of God, not just in Jerusalem, but among the nations. And as a sign that what Jesus taught was true, that God no longer dwells in the physical temple, but in the hearts of his people, the temple was completely destroyed. I mean, have you ever wondered why 2,000 years later the temple still has never been rebuilt? It's because God ordained for there to be an ongoing sign that the time of the nations is here. True worshippers now worship in spirit and in truth, not in the temple in Jerusalem. This time of the nations will continue until the great commission is fulfilled and the disciples are made from every nation on earth. See, Jesus wants to remind his disciples that the destruction of the temple will be a sign to them that the kingdom of God is near. Not just that, the destruction of the temple, also, second sign, false teachers. Now read with me verse 8. Jesus says the following. And he said, see that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he. 
And the time is at hand. Do not go after them. Jesus warns against false messiahs, people claiming to be God's anointed king or to be sent on his behalf. And Acts records one such example in Acts chapter 5, a man called Thutis, who swept up many Jewish followers. In the period after Jesus' crucifixion, we know from history that there were many of these such people. And you know, these days we do occasionally see the odd crazy person uh, claiming to be the Messiah. I love uh, a headline from the City Morning Herald nine years ago. I still remember it really clearly. Queensland-based former IT specialist A.G. Miller says his Jesus Christ reborn. And a surprising number of people believe him. Isn't that great? IT specialists come. Messiah, that's so good. But these false teachers need not all be religious or crazy. History is filled with people who have come making radical claims to be able to fix the world, appealing for our trust in them. Political campaigns. I I just remember so clearly Barack Obama's 2008 election slogan, which was simply the word hope. This candidate represents our hope for the future. Uh, Tech billionaires like Elon Musk, who paint a vision of this amazing utopian future possible by investment in their technology. But the greatest danger in these last days lies not outside the church, but within the church. The Apostle Paul, writing to Timothy, says the following in Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. He says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching for... The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. See, false teachers coming in Jesus' name proclaiming the health and wealth gospel or the gospel without repentance from sexual immorality or denying the truth of the Bible or denying Jesus is the only way to be saved, or even that the gospel is not the main thing. Although we may rightly feel sorrow and anger at false teaching in the church, Jesus wants to remind his disciples not to be afraid or surprised when they see it. Jesus wants to remind his disciples that false teachers are a sign that the kingdom of God is near. But not just false teachers, secondly, Number three, persecution. We read the following in verses 12 through 13. Jesus says, But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Jesus goes into great detail about the kind of persecution that his followers will experience. They'll be brought to trial before kings and religious leaders and thrown into prison. Verse 16 says they'll be delivered up. The same word used of Judas' betrayal of Jesus. They will be betrayed by parents, by brothers, by relatives, by friends. Some of them will be put to death. They will be hated by all for my name's sake, says Jesus, reminding of us his words in John 15, 20, where he says a servant is not greater than his master. And despite the horror of what Jesus is predicting will come, 
the sovereign hand of God will clearly be at work still. Their persecution and trial before leaders will be an opportunity to bear witness to Jesus. They won't need to fear what to say. He will give them the words to speak. They will come under sovereign protection from God down to the very hairs on their head. And they will be preserved despite some of them dying. They will be raised with Jesus. And we see all these predictions coming true in the book of Acts. You see, the truth is that for hundreds of years, also at home, Christian values have been honored in our culture. And yet things feel like they've been changing really rapidly, don't they? For the first time in living memory, despite the constant persecution of Christians around the world in other places, we're beginning to feel some of the pressure at home, even in a small way, aren't we? A church is increasingly being mocked and disparaged in our culture. Laws have been passed in some states seeking to regulate even what Christians can pray about. And these events, though, are not a cause for alarm. This is what Jesus told us to expect. See, Jesus wants to remind his disciples that persecution is a sign that the kingdom of God is near. But not just persecution, three, fourth, and finally as well, also global distress. Uh, Read with me verse 9. Jesus says the following. Says, and when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Jesus describes great global distress, verses 9 and 10, wars, verses verse 11, earthquakes and famines and plagues, verse 25, signs in the sky like the sun and moon and stars and on earth with the oceans and waves. The result being verse 26, we read the following. People fainting with fear and foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. There's this widespread, deep-seated fear and panic and confusion. Great worry and concern about the future. But Jesus is not out to scare the disciples. On the contrary, he has said in verse 9, Do not be terrified, for these things must first take place. We read on in verse 31, Jesus says the following. He says, so also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Global distress, earthquakes, famine, pandemics. Wars are not a cause for panic for the Christian, but a sign that the kingdom of God, the return of the Lord Jesus, is near. Jesus reassures his disciples that all these signs would begin within their lifetime. And indeed, they did occur. The temple was destroyed. False teachers did arise. Persecution did begin. Global distress continued. But Jesus wants them to know that there is something even more certain than heaven and earth itself. And that is his promise. These are all signs that the kingdom of God is near. They will one day see the Son of Man coming in the glory cloud of God's presence. Friends, let me ask you again. 
as you look out on the world, how do you feel? You feel nervous. You feel anxious. You feel fearful about the future, even maybe possibly concerned about bringing children into this kind of world. Closely watching the news cycle. As Christians, we should feel incredibly hopeful, not in the circumstances or situations themselves, but in the reality that they point to the return of the king. The coming of the kingdom of God is near. And that's point number one, four signs the kingdom of God is near, but not just point number one, point number two, our second and final point, Three encouragements for waiting in hope. See, I started our time together by suggesting that Jesus isn't trying to scare the disciples or rebuke the disciples, but to prepare them for the future after his departure. And he does this with three main encouragements to help them live faithfully in the time between his ascension and his return in glory. And so we begin with the first of these encouragements. Encourage number one to resolve to trust God and proclaim Christ. Read with me verses 13 through to 15 again. Jesus says this, This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand on how to answer, but I will give you a mouth and a wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You know, in the midst of persecution, They will be brought before rulers and leaders. Their lives will be on the line. And you kind of can't blame them for feeling a genuine fear. And yet Jesus says, this will be your opportunity to testify about me. They are therefore to settle in their minds. Literally, it says to lay it in your hearts. It means be utterly determined. Resolve at the center of your being. What are they to resolve? Not to meditate beforehand. That word means to practice a speech. Settle in your very being, not to practice a speech beforehand. Jesus is saying, be utterly determined to trust that God will help you to testify about me. Do we share that same determination? Trust God to help us to share Jesus with others. You know, I can feel embarrassment at times when I consider my struggle in light of those being persecuted in the world. Even just this week, thinking about our Somalian brothers planning and training to plant a church back into Somalia. Nonetheless, to live faithfully, waiting in hope for the return of Jesus to be moved by the plight of our neighbors. Despite our weaknesses, our fumbling speech, to have a deep trust in God's help and to step forward in love to share Christ with others. A question I've been just thinking on this week is, when was the last time I shared the good news about Jesus with someone else? You know, a right response to knowing the kingdom of God is near is to trust God despite our inadequacies to have our Lord Jesus on our lips. 
That's encouragement number one, to resolve to trust God and proclaim Christ. But not just that, encouragement number two is to respond to the signs with trust in Christ. Read with me verse 28. Jesus says the following. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Now when we see all these kind of events on TV, it's easy to begin to embody the kind of pessimism of our culture. The future seems increasingly bleak. Jesus says, when you see these things beginning to take place, straighten up. It's the same word used of the woman bent over in Luke 13. It means to take heart in expectation of deliverance. It means to stand tall. Jesus says, raise your heads. It's a picture of someone kind of walking along with their heads down, downcast. It's a, it's a Hebrew expression that, that means regain your courage. When you see all these signs, the temple destroyed, false teaching, persecution, global turmoil, don't lose heart. Your redemption, the return of the Lord Jesus is drawing near. You know, we don't know when the Lord Jesus will return. But we do know it's never been closer. Too often we look at the world events or what's happening in the church and we're discouraged. And often I think it's because we have, we think about the kingdom of God in a man-centered way. We think way too highly of ourselves and what we can achieve before Christ returns. We think about the gospel in terms of people making Jesus their Lord and Savior, forgetting that no one makes Jesus anything. He is the Lord and Savior of the world, regardless of people, whether people like it or not. And we forget that the kingdom of God is not primarily something we build or the impact we have on our community or the size of our church, but something we are receiving. We are heralds running into the battlefield, proclaiming the good news. We are servants aiding the master in the fight he's already won. We forget that the brokenness we see all around us is meant to be a clear sign from the Lord Jesus reminding us every day things are not as they should be, but I'm coming again soon. And so we're to respond to the signs with trust in Christ. Secondly, not responding in trust to Christ, but also Encouragement number three, to remember the moment we're in. Now, we've already seen the Lord's encouragement to beware of false teachers and to take care we're not deceived, that we need to be so careful not to start to walk away from the scriptures for things that suit our own passions or match our cultural prejudices like gender roles and our thoughts about that. It can't be right. It must be not what the Bible says or sexuality or finances, surely we can't be expected to be generous with our things or to have little for the sake of Christ or the importance of the local church and devotion to the Lord's day. But there's also a danger that wrong thinking about the time that we're in can lead us to fall away from faithfully living for Christ. Read with me verse 34. Jesus says, but watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation. I had to look that word up, what it means. It means wild living. Be weighed down with 
wild living and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. And one of the effects of failing to recognize the moment we're in is to respond in despair to the things we see in the world. Failing to see world events as signs from the Lord Jesus will lead us in one of two directions. To drown our sorrows with wild living or to fall in love with the world. The cares of this life, it's a reference to the thorns that choke out the seed in the parable of the sower. And so we must pay careful attention lest our hearts be hardened by what we see in the world or in the church. Here's a question for us to consider as we finish our time together. When was the last time you paused to give careful consideration to the condition of your heart towards God? As you look at the world and the trajectory of your life, do you sense a little disappointment or disillusionment with God? Disillusionment or disappointment with the church creeping in, a a hardening of your heart towards God. Have you noticed a small increase in your desire for the things of the world, feeling like maybe you're missing out on something like a home or a holiday or a relationship or an investment opportunity? Perhaps a desire to to indulge in the finer things of life a little bit more, perhaps even drunkenness. Now, if you're noticing your heart showing signs of being weighed down by life, the Lord doesn't want to keep your gaze there. He wants you to look up and cast your gaze on him. He says the following in verse 36 of our passage. He says this, he says, but stay awake at all times praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Now, a couple of days later, Jesus would be back on the Mount of Olives praying and would ask his disciples to stay awake and pray again. Yet they were so tired they fell asleep twice. How different their prayers would have been if they could have seen the moment they were in if they could have seen in that moment the mob who were at that very moment making their way up the Mount of Olives to arrest and take captive their Lord Jesus. See, the Lord Jesus wants us to stay awake as well. doesn't mean that we're to become an insomniac and stop sleeping, but to live with an awareness of the moment of history that we're in. We live in a world that is at war with God. But the Lord Jesus has come and claimed the decisive victory by his obedient life and death and his victorious resurrection. He is the Lord and Savior of the whole earth, and he calls humanity to repent and trust in him. He didn't just die on the cross for our sins, but he's risen in glory and he's promised to return. And so we live in the last days where the kingdom of God is near, when we will stand before the Son of Man in glory. And Jesus invites us to pray that God would strengthen us to live faithfully as we wait. See, one of the great barriers to faithful living in these last days is simply failing to remember the moment we're in. 
Well, as we finally close, I just thought I'd end with a story that some of you are familiar with of my time at university. Many of you will know I grew up in DAPTO. I did the final two years of my training as a physio in, in the University of Sydney. I can remember I was just so obsessed with studying and working hard. At exam time, I would study up till midnight. I'd get up at five and I'd drive uh, all the way to University of Sydney for exams that often start at 8 a.m. in the morning. It's pretty rough, um, but I would do that. And on the way home, a number of occasions, I'd be driving along the freeway, getting close to home, just the monotony of the road going past, I'd begin to feel my eyes getting heavy and struggle to keep them open. And so I'd wind down the window in the cold, I'd slap myself, I'd sing daggy Christian songs, I would do everything I could to stay awake. But on two occasions, I remember closing my eyes, what I thought was briefly, and opening them again to see my car veering in towards the median strip in the middle of the freeway. Nothing like that will wake you up properly from falling asleep than realizing you have fallen asleep at the wheel. And if you fall asleep at the wheel of of a car, the lives of everyone in your car are in danger. It's just a matter of time before you have an accident. Fail to wake up in time and you'll never wake up again. But there's a kind of falling asleep that's even more dangerous than falling asleep at the wheel of a car. And that's falling asleep at the wheel of life. Forgetting the moment that we're in. The very last days before his kingdom comes. And so would that not be the case for any of us here today? If we stay awake, eyes firmly fixed on our merciful Lord Jesus. Friends, let's hope in the await in hope in the coming kingdom of God. Would you join with me in praying just as the Lord Jesus asks us that we'd have strength to be faithful until we stand before him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you this morning for the wonderful, the beautiful gift of being counted among your people. And Lord God, as you know, we so often struggle and fail to be awake to rightly see things as they are, Lord God, to remember that you are victorious. You are the King and Savior of the whole earth, and you are coming again. Lord, help us as we look at the tumult, the trouble, the wars and strife in our world to remember. These are signs to remind us that things are not right, but you're coming again soon. Help us cling onto the hope of Jesus, exalted and in glory, powerful, present, reigning and returning. And would our lives reflect ever increasingly a patient waiting for our coming King, whose name we pray. Amen.